The war against spam has been going on for decades. Email spam blockers and ad blockers help protect us from unwanted messages in our communication and browsing experience. These spam prevention tools are powered by machine learning, and that machine learning catches most of the emails and ads that we don't want to see. Truecaller is a company that is bringing this quality of spam detection to our phone call systems. Umut Alp is the CTO of Truecaller, and he joins the show today to break down the engineering problems of preventing telephone call spam. Users of Truecaller install it on their phone, and the software allows users to report when they have received a spam phone call. Using this reporting mechanism as crowdsourcing, and also using other learning algorithms, Truecaller is able to learn what types of calls it should block from being accepted by your phone. Today on Software Engineering Daily, we discuss cell phone spam prevention. Umut Alp is the CTO at Truecaller. Umut, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. Thank you. Let's start by explaining what Truecaller does from a high level. Could you explain that? Yeah, sure. Uh, on a very high level, we are actually a global caller ID application. So we are trying to enhance the communication, like phone communication, because we all have smartphones in our pockets, hands all the time. And part of our communication daily routine is uh, making calls, receiving calls, SMSs and such. So we are enhancing that. Like instead of seeing numbers, you know, fives and sevens and such, you see names and uh, pictures and some other information. Uh, so you don't have uh, spam, scam calls, uh, unknown numbers, missed calls that you don't know who they are. So we are solving that problem uh, for a global audience. So it works globally, and so far we reached more than 200 million users worldwide. When you look at Truecaller from the, at the current product from the top down, what are the engineering problems that you break the product into? Uh, lots of them. So, I mean, in the beginning, <clears throat> it was always uh, like any other startup. It's, it was about product market fit, how we can uh, iterate quickly and come to a point that we solve our users' problems and solve it in a, in a sophisticated way, in a nice way. So the UX was, you know, part of it. And also data, data quality was part of it. So that was uh, the initial phases. And then after, you know, a couple of millions of users, there comes the scalability, reliability issues. And uh, because no system is designed for millions of users from, the, from day one. So then came the challenges of uh, migrating whatever... Uh, now we call it legacy, but uh, back then it was the systems. So migration and you know changing it, improving reliability, improving uh, failure modes and such. So that was the the second phase, I would say, more maturity phase. And now actually we are trying to shave off latencies and such to give uh, better service to our users. Uh, so that's more uh, sophisticated problem. So that's the third phase that we are at right now. So let's start with the core engineering problem, or at least the first engineering problem that I can see from the top down, which is the idea of spam prevention. So yeah. when I get a call from a number that is suspected as spam, Truecaller will tell me that this might be a spammer. How does Truecaller know when a number is from a spammer? So it's a, a combination of a lot of things, actually. So we have uh, our own uh, data coming from like some manual research and uh, some partners uh, worldwide and such. So that's one source. Uh, but the big contribution is actually coming from our users. Like uh, each and every user, when they... Uh, Know, bump into a spam call they actually contribute that information back that signal back so we use that signal uh, together with other signals and also call patterns that we see because uh, we see who is calling who who is searching for which phone number with what frequency and such so all these information all these signals 
uh, are processed uh, and we have certain certain algorithms for that and we are trying to optimize for uh, for the best algorithm uh, that means you know changing it all the time because I, I don't know if you uh, know it or not but uh, in most countries spam numbers are uh, changing all the time like they uh, get a number use it for a while and then change it and it goes like that so the algorithm should be very responsive but not giving you false uh, positives uh, to to stop your calls basically so it's a big challenge Absolutely. And in many cases of the spammer versus a spam blocker, like an email spam or perhaps in text message spam, there's this constant war of attrition between the spammer and the anti-spammer where every each side, the spammers and the anti-spammers are constantly learning. Like I think of Gmail's filter, for example. How is that battle going? Like who who is kind of winning the battle between spammer and anti-spammer? I think for the um, for us at least I can you know answer that question from my end. Uh, for us, uh, we are definitely winning in the markets that we have a, <clears throat> a significant volume of users, uh, which means you know the spam callers they are actually calling people, and if we have a significant uh, amount of users in that market in that country. Uh, then we get enough signals to actually stop them. So that was actually the, the initial traction for Truecaller. Like if we go back in time, like five years, and look at which countries we became, uh, you know, top app, uh, you can clearly see the spam effect, like spammers calling people all the time. Uh, having scam calls like uh, Nigerian princes and all those uh, stuff. So those countries were the were the initial uh, places that we got big. Um, so so when I when I get when I get a phone call and, and I have Truecaller installed, Truecaller needs to tell me whether or not that is a piece of spam. Does does the Truecaller application need to make an external request from the phone to your servers to find out if it's a spam number? Uh, yes and no. Uh, we have some uh, list of popular spam numbers, uh, you know, finite list, uh, obviously, uh, that we periodically uh, get from from our signals. So that information is already cached on the on the phone. So even if you're offline, you can access that information. And if the spam call is on that list, then it's uh, marked as a spam to the user. And that's essentially how it works for iPhone as well, because uh, for iPhone, you don't actually get uh, call events uh, programmatically, which means your only bet is that uh, semi-static list, which we update when the user opens the app. Uh, And that list is only protection, basically. But on Android, we also do live lookups, so to, to enhance that, so even if it's not in that list, it might still be marked as spam in our system. So that information comes from a live lookup as you receive the call. So from my personal experience, SMS spam and robo-dialing have both gotten significantly worse in recent years. And I don't know if this is because of Twilio or because of cheap cloud computing in general or... Or maybe I'm just an outlier and I gave away my phone number too many times. But <laughs> is that accurate? Is there more spam than ever before? Uh, yes. I mean, that we can clearly see in our uh, in our traffic, in our logs. Like, uh, of course, we are growing in user base. Uh, but even if we normalize that by, you know, per user basis, uh, it's it's a significant trend going up. Basically, U.S. is definitely one of those uh, those countries. Actually, just a few days ago, there was a, an article about this uh, somewhere I read. Like uh, robocalls and uh, spam numbers significantly uh, growing uh, in the last years. Like the uh, "Don't call me" list not working and such. So, in the end, that's that's a trend that we see. But we are trying to capture all those signals, even if people don't mark people as spam like there are some patterns that uh, we are trying to to grab like if a phone number is calling 
hundred people in just a matter of hours or an hour, then uh, it's very likely that that number is used for a spam purposes. So those kind, see, see. those kind of signals are we are actually trying to get more and more uh, intelligent every uh, every iteration with our algorithms. So if there is a number that so so if you have all these phones out there with TrueCaller installed and through your systems you see a hundred different you see a, a certain phone number that makes a hundred requests to phone numbers throughout your TrueCaller system um, and you you say that this is this seems like suspicious information this seems like suspicious behavior. How does that translate to the number eventually being blocked? Do you still have to get at least one report from one of the people that says this is a robocaller? I would prefer not sharing the details of the algorithms, but uh, (laughs) it's essentially a combination of all those signals. So, like, this is one input, and, you know, being marked by our users as spam is another input. Uh, some web crawling and publicly available data uh, crawling is another input that we use uh, and we get all those things in and uh, get the likelihood scoring uh, out and based on that we have different thresholds for different markets because of uh, call patterns are different our user base are different so that is also another uh, market info is another uh, input to the system. So that's essentially how it works. Sure. So uh, Twilio is this SMS and telephony as a service cloud computing company. Do you think that Twilio is a source of significant phone spam? Uh, well, I mean, for us, it's very hard to hard to track that, trace that back, uh, you know, if it's a Twilio number or somewhere else. And frankly, we prefer not to care about that because, I mean, they are actually serving um, a lot of, you know, good use cases as well. So probably they are working on uh, blocking spam on their side. So that's what I know. I mean, certainly, I don't, I don't think we care about, uh, you know, tracing it back to provider X or Y or Z. Do you do integrations with telecom providers to get more close to the source type of information to improve TrueCaller? No, not really. We have some uh, some ongoing partnerships, but nothing concrete so far. Uh, you know, it's it's a bit hard to uh, to do those kind of partnerships. Uh, telco companies they are usually very slow, very big heavily regulated so they don't have the agility of a startup like we have so it's very hard to do that kind of partnerships so essentially no but we are trying from our side can you ask can you ask like the nsa to get some of the telecom information and forward it to you perhaps (laughs) maybe maybe (laughs) so okay uh you mentioned scalability TrueCaller has a lot of data, and your company has been around for seven years. How has your storage model evolved over time? Well, uh, I mean, initially it was just uh, one server, basically. (laughs) That was all. Uh, And then uh, essentially grew into what it is today. So our storage model... I think it is pretty simple. Uh, We don't really have... Uh, that much sophistication uh, for a few reasons. Maybe I can uh, tell you a bit more information about that. Uh, A, for technical reasons, and B, for regulatory reasons, we actually serve uh, main traffic from a single data center. So that's uh, both good and bad. Good in terms of, you know, significantly less complexity, but of course bad in terms of redundancy and failover scenarios. So what we are doing instead is uh, we are actually using our main data center as source of truth data, uh, essentially driven by regulatory reasons, licensing and regulatory reasons for us, because we uh, store and process uh, data coming from our users, user-generated content in a sense, 
uh, and that requires us a certain specific license from Swedish government and European Union. And that also implies to have um, source of truth data uh, somewhere internal in European Union, basically. So that's part one. And uh, of course, we want to have redundancy and we want to get closer to our users. And for that to happen, we are uh, adding public cloud components to the picture. So data is in an uh, in a way uh, pushed towards the edges, which are closer to our users, uh, not essentially stored there for long, but in an ephemeral storage type of cache uh, layer closer to the users. That's essentially the strategy for us for now. Uh, as I said, both you know technical reasons and regulatory reasons. Sure. So, what about the internal infrastructure of your of your servers? Do you yeah. have a microservices architecture, or tell me more about your backend services? Yes. Yeah. So yeah, we have a microservices architecture internally. Um, so we are using uh, JVM microservices, basically. Uh, some services Java and some services Scala internally. And uh, the data store layer is source of truth data is mainly uh, MySQL, MariaDB still. Uh, and we have some derivative uh, data store that we use for certain services. And some of them are from Elasticsearch. Uh, it's, a, it's a component heavily used internally. And uh, some of them are still served directly from some MySQL clusters, MariaDB clusters. So that's uh, essentially what it is. Of course, there are certain components that every uh, system of this scale uses, like cache layer. We're using memcached and Redis for some stuff. Uh, we are uh, using Kafka heavily internally. Uh, and for analytics and event <clears throat> event tracking pipeline, we are using Kafka and Hadoop uh, for some offline processing and such. So that's essentially how it looks. But front end uh, user facing services are all uh, REST like uh, APIs microservices. Do you have any other like processing systems other than Hadoop, like Spark or Storm, to do yeah. more? M more timely analytics on stuff like phone numbers? Yes, exactly. Uh, both for business metrics and also like uh, sophisticated algorithms like spam blocking and such. We are using Spark jobs, actually. Uh, so that's, that's a lot of data that we continuously process. And some of them it makes sense to process in a stream fashion. Some of them you just you know, sweep the whole data and, you know, do some aggregations and such. Uh, but majority of those processes are actually Spark processes for us. Yeah. Could you contrast why you would use Spark in one in one type of job and why you would use Hadoop in a different type of job? Maybe you can give an example of each of those. Uh, so <clears throat> when we look at, for example, user stories, like um, how our users are using our app, uh, what are the functionalities that uh, you know they are interested in? They are using uh, recurrently and such. That is, uh, by definition, naturally uh, sliced and diced based on markets, based on user groups, based on uh, maybe platforms, maybe f phone models like high-end devices, low-end devices, and such. So that's uh, that's essentially not time critical. Uh, for us, but very good information. And also that's a lot of information that we uh, sweep through. So for those kind of things, uh, like maybe the, the data structure on the, on the HDFS side is uh, fit into that model of thinking. And then maybe just basic higher queries are good enough for getting uh, that type of information. But on the other hand, we have a lot of uh, signals coming from our users, uh, both for true color users, also uh, like other people, non true color users, calling true color users as well. That's also 
sometimes a signal that we receive from our users if they do the lookup uh, for that phone number. So we process all those information and spam information and that needs to be near real time. So Spark jobs are actually quite nice uh, to get that type of events uh, onto a pipeline with, which is essentially a dummy service backed up by uh, Kafka queues and consumers consuming from those topics on Kafka and just uh, passing that to some uh, stream processing jobs, basically. So it's important because we have to process it uh, near real time. Because as I said, spam numbers are usually recycled. So we have to be quick. There are so many client front ends that you have to build for TrueCaller because you want it deployed on Android and BlackBerry and iOS and all these other phone manufacturers. How do you keep all of these up to date? Well, that's a, <laughs> that's a significant engineering challenge, actually. Uh, what we do is basically, uh, let me give you a brief info about how engineering works in TrueCaller. Uh, so we have the engineering teams, my teams basically tech uh, side, and we also have another team, uh, we call it product team basically, uh, which is coupled. So basically product team internally, they focus on prioritizations and you know what to build, in what order, what would be the user value, how people are uh, seeing those features and such. Uh, and they could come up with their own prioritization. And on the engineering side, uh, there's a coupled uh, side to it. On the engineering side, uh, engineering managers do their own prioritization and they sit down and sync, basically. And based on those uh, syncs, uh, we look at what is the impact to user, what is uh, the cost of development, what is cost of maintenance and such. So that process is followed by what to build and for each platform we have like uh, persistent teams like uh, an Android team, an iPhone team, uh, one man on Windows phone platform. Uh, so small teams but they focus on their platforms so they know all the UX patterns and all the platform intricacies and such <clears throat> and take those uh, product backlogs and make it happen. So keeping them uh, in sync is a big deal because uh, each platform, they have their own capabilities and problems. Uh, I just uh, briefly discussed actually, uh, iPhone platform, iOS platform is <clears throat> pretty much restricted. Uh, you cannot get call history, you cannot get call events and such. So what TrueColor can do on that platform is a bit different than what we can do on Android, for example. That's interesting. Does it lead to a situation where you can't maintain exact feature parity among the different clients because yes. you just have you know, different features? And so you actually have to build the product in a specific way where you can't expect to have, uh, you can't expect to be able to gather all the same types of data from all different clients? Yes, exactly. And I mean, uh, that happened, that started happening in the very, very early days, like five years ago. So uh, we are okay with uh, not being able to keep the future parity. We are trying to be uh, the best utility application in that domain within the platform constraints, basically. That's what we care about, and that's, that's what uh, our uh, product owners, product managers care about, and that's what the engineering teams uh, are trying to do, basically. And yes, they're always out of sync to some extent. So you mentioned that you don't want to go into extreme detail about the algorithms and um, how you are figuring out what signals you want to listen to when you're aggregating your spam database. But could you tell me some about the kinds of machine learning, the kinds of data science, the general strategies that you are using to develop effective algorithms for detecting spam? Uh, well, of course. I mean, uh, I'm not hands-on one of the people in that team 
to know you know all the technical details but uh, I can give you you know a brief overview of it uh, so one thing that we care a lot is actually being able to process that signal uh, quickly and another thing is actually uh, like uh, taking the <clears throat> user base factor out of the uh, the equation out of the system uh, what I mean by that is <clears throat> the the signals that we see are uh, heavily coupled to how big the market is, how uh, the call patterns are. For example, in some countries, uh, after a certain uh, time in the evening, you see no calls at all because it's actually you know seen as rude culturally. But in some other countries they are calling the same until they sleep, basically, like in every hour. So those call patterns are different. So we are actually trying to, uh, one big challenge for us is try to normalize that. Like call patterns, calling hours, uh, who calls who, you know, do you make most of your calls within your social circle or do you actually make a lot of calls outside the circle? And what is the norm for the for the whole population for that market? So those kind of things, uh, those are more or less essentially like some statistical uh, information over what we see on our systems, and we take those uh, signals, statistical signals, and feed that back into the system so that we normalize those things. So we don't uh, act the same way as we do in India versus. Sweden, because those are culturally very different, uh, population densities are different, uh, true color penetration is very much different, so we treat them differently with different thresholds and such. Can you talk more about how you built out the data science team or the machine learning team? Oh boy, that's <laughs> probably one of the hardest uh, things to build. Uh, both structurally because uh, Hadoop ecosystem is rapidly changing. It, it, I mean, if you look at relational databases and say it's there for, I don't know, 20 plus years, it's very mature, you know, the tooling is nice and uh, tidy and such. Uh, of course, you know, there are cases that it is good for, there are cases that you need something else, right? Uh, but for Hadoop side, it's always changing. Like just the last uh, two years or so, we are using uh, HDFS. We changed a lot of things all the time. And failure modes uh, are very, uh, very interesting. So the operational side requires a lot of uh, uh, hands-on knowledge. Like everyone thinks that, uh, yeah, it's fault tolerant. It's built to be fault tolerant. So it can fail whatever you can continue, which is usually not the case because when things fail, you either lose capacity or you lose some of the uh, critical processes. So you have to be actively developing for the system to, uh, to keep the systems resilient, basically. Another big challenge was actually finding people because it's a super, super hot topic. Every company just for the sake of having data scientists, they want to have data scientists in the team. Even if their problems are not really large scale, even if they don't really need machine learning or other sophisticated methods, they still want to have data scientists. They still want to have big teams and such. So finding people is was one of the big challenges for us. But once we have uh, the infrastructure, once we have the operational knowledge, and once we have the people, Actually, our challenges are, um, you know, size of data and the, uh, the variance in uh, different signals. That's so uh, much interesting that actually, you know, keeping the team um, busy and happy uh, was not a big challenge after that point. But the initial challenges were really, really hard. I, I can say that that was the hardest uh, team uh, under tech to build sounds like just because it's so specialized it's such in high de- it's in such high demand yeah exactly 
So what about uh, ops or DevOps or how, what is your methodology for uptime and do you have a team around that? Yeah, we actually have a, a separate team around that, a very small team, actually a team of three people. Uh, so since we have physical machines, we actually have to have some physical operations as well, like racking servers, uh, just uh, changing the disks and such. So we are not a cloud-only company uh, in that sense, in terms of infrastructure. So that is one part of their responsibility. But big part of their responsibility is actually keeping the software stack components working, like oiling the machinery, basically. Um, the platform team, the backend teams, uh, they actually own uh, a big part of the operational uh, responsibility as well. Uh, but there are certain things we want to uh, keep in the in the operations team, like for uh, security safety reasons, uh, for uh, operational compatibility between uh, software components and such. So that's essentially how it is on a large uh, on a broad uh, overview. So it's just three people, which means someone. Uh, needs to share that responsibility and what we are trying to do is uh, starting from the front end all the way to analytics and back-end uh, platform engineering everyone actually shares that operational responsibility when when things happen when bugs happen or general system failures happen we just uh, do whatever we can within our our domain basically uh, so that's how it is about uptime, <clears throat> of course, it's a it's a main concern, especially uh, as I mentioned before. We uh, hold the source of truth uh, data in one data center at the moment, with some uh, redundancy and backups and other safety measures. But still, uh, majority of the traffic uh, is going to be limited by cache hits. Uh, if that data center is not responding or down or uh, not connected. So that requires a lot of work for uh, building resilient systems. And we are actively working on that. For example, between the microservices, we have a lot of internal service calls. So for all of them, we are actually um, following a pattern of uh, having circuit breakers. So if one part fails, and the circuit breaks and the other parts don't get affected. Uh, so they uh, fail uh, gracefully in a way. Uh, so we have all those principles internalized between operations and backend platform. You've mentioned that you are on your own data center a couple times. And did you say that's mainly for compliance reasons? What kinds of compliance are there around storing phone numbers and user data? So we are actually working, uh, we have a legal team uh, internally working very closely with uh, the relevant bodies uh, in Sweden and uh, European Union. Uh, mm, well, I mean, essentially the the compliance is not really very strict. It's not like uh, you know, PCI compliance and, you know, credit card information and such. It's not as standardized as those. So it's a bit hard for us to get that information. Like, okay, we want to comply, but to what? So we work, uh, sometimes we work case by case with uh, the government bodies to understand what we can do, what we cannot do. For example, that uh, edge location ephemeral storage thing, uh, I mentioned that was one of those things. Like uh, we were not sure if we can uh, move data outside the data center, and uh, we just uh, realized that that is possible with those constra constraints, like not having uh, persistent storage and such. So essentially, the the big constraint for us was actually keeping data within the EU EU borders. So that was the the hardest constraint for us because that actually rules out uh, having redundancy on multiple regions outside the EU. 
which is essentially what where our users are mostly. Exactly. I mean, like India was is one of the things I wanted to talk about, but um, uh, I mean, are, are there are there types of features that you literally cannot build because you can't get to the cloud, or is it more a matter of redundancy and speed? Uh, I think a little bit of both. I I don't think. Uh, I mean, we are actually following a, a general roadmap. Like we prioritize stuff and such, and so far I don't really see any big blocks because of these compliance reasons. Uh, that didn't really happen. As I said, we end up sometimes with some compromises. Like I would probably uh, design the general architecture a little bit different if I didn't have those compliance uh, constraints. Uh, but it was never a real, you know, showstopper for us. Uh, we find uh, workarounds for for those constraints. Mm, okay. As, as long as we don't compromise the uh, user data uh, security, basically. So you mentioned that the big, uh, you know, the big markets for you are outside of the EU. One of those markets is India. So explain why TrueCaller is extremely popular in India. Yep. Uh, so one thing uh, for us that we uh, recurrently see in several different markets uh, is if a market uh, has a lot of spam calls, uh, then that's a very, very good market for Trucola. So that was the case for India, uh, for sure. Uh, another thing is lack of proper white pages, yellow pages, publicly available information. So uh, in those countries, in majority of the countries that we are big, uh, there's a clear absence of white pages, yellow pages, reliable source of data. So which means that they cannot just, you know, uh, get the phone number, Google it, and find the information easily. Uh, so our information is, uh, is bringing something which the market lacks, basically. So I think both cases were very much there for India. And another mm, pattern that we see is uh, in India, culturally, people call each other a lot because uh, mainly the <clears throat> in the Western world, we have m- more structured lifestyles like uh, typical things like practicalities, city life and such. It's more structured than <clears throat> controlled. And, uh, but it's much more chaotic in uh, countries like India, for example. Uh, they have their own solutions to problems. Uh, they care a lot about being cost efficient and such. Uh, and telco companies, they actually... Uh, Propose uh, they they actually bring a very low cost uh, phone call and SMS uh, to people. So they actually solve a lot of problems by instead of creating you know big fancy sophisticated structures, they solve the problems by making extra phone calls. I'm here. Where are you? Where is the delivery? Who is picking up that uh, package? So those kind of things. Instead of having more sophisticated systems, they actually do more calls. So that those are the patterns that we see. And uh, that was the case for a lot of Middle Eastern countries, uh, India, and now we're actually rapidly growing in US and some other Western markets as well. Sub-Saharan Africa is getting bigger every day also. The, the race to connect people to the internet in India is is a very interesting topic that we've touched on a couple of times on this show. So, so this race to connect people has really heated up. And last year, Truecaller was very outspoken about Facebook's free basics program. And I thought this would be an, an interesting topic of conversation. Why, why did Truecaller see free basics as problematic? This was, this was the serve. This was the free, Facebook service that is essentially presents a walled garden to you. You get Facebook for free, you get Wikipedia for free, you get some other services for free, but you don't get everything for free. Yeah. So why was this problematic? 
Yeah, uh, I mean, we were kind of uh, in that discussion considering, like, if you just go and check uh, app stores in India, like uh, in top five, let's say, you see Facebook, you see Google, and you see Truecaller as well. So as one of those players, a lot of people reached out to us what we think and such. So uh, what, what I can say, both personally and also from the company perspective, what I can say is <clears throat> the problem with that uh, that approach was uh, like, okay, I mean, you would uh, give like free uh, bandwidth in, the, in a sense, but uh, to a walled garden and the, if you just go and check the list of applications uh, which are allowed in that walled garden, uh, you don't have a free choice for your provider. You know, for each service, you have one or two providers, maybe. So it's essentially, um, it was definitely helping Facebook and a few other providers in different domains. Uh, but it was stopping the, the free evolution of the internet and uh, you know, whoever actually provides value to the users, they should be reachable. And uh, this kind of approach would uh, inherently uh, leave the market uh, stop or cause the market stop innovating. So that's 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 right for sure. But well, free basics was it wasn't forced upon anybody though. It was just an option that you could use as a person in India. Why was it problematic for Facebook to even present the option to users? But uh, India is essentially very much price sensitive. Like uh, so, something being free but optional. Uh, actually means for a lot of people for for a lot of communities it actually means that uh, you would not go for the paid option at all because because of you know cost reasons and that's a different discussion to make of course but uh, that's that's essentially how it is so although it is not uh, framed as a uh, as a mandatory thing and such it was uh, optional uh, but it would definitely uh, affect the innovation, for sure. Mm. So for, speaking for of infrastructure fake. investments and such, as well as other other services. Yeah, I, I'm sympathetic to that. So, so speaking of Facebook, Facebook has become this identity system of the internet, and. I think of my phone number as another unique form of identity, but it's become less of a de facto uh, identity form. Why don't we use our phone number as our OAuth system? Well, that's essentially uh, one of the things that we are uh, heavily betting on. Uh, I don't know if you know, but we have a, a product offering called True SDK. Which is essentially uh, what you just explained, like using mobile phones as a form of identity. It's not essentially a OAuth provider type of uh, system, not yet at least. Uh, but what it does is uh, using your phone number, so we can actually uh, pass that information to other uh, service provider apps or websites or whatever. Uh, we can provide that information with the user's consent, of course. Uh, and use your phone number as an identity. And the reason that we can do this, uh, together with you know some other companies like big ones, uh, the reason we are we can do this is because we have a, a huge penetration in some of the markets, and also we rely on that information, uh, phone number information being verified uh, by our systems already. So we already do that verification. And we might as well give the user the opportunity to use that information on other systems as well. And also from the app developers or uh, service integration perspective, it's one uh, problem less to think about because someone else, in this case, Truecaller, uh, manages and verifies phone numbers. So. so for some time now, the phone number has been this unique abstraction that is almost like a hash code for who you are. Um, but 
you know, there are these, you know, other services like Facebook or Twitter, these other OAuth services that provide a more robust identity system. Why? So where does the phone number, the idea of the phone number fit in versus those other identity systems for the future? What are the, you know, I can think of different login systems where I use Facebook for this or I use Google for this. Um, and there's different granularities of my identity that I expose to these different systems. What is the future of the idea of the phone number as a login tool? Um, yes, you have a point. I mean, uh, for each domain, you actually uh, have a different set of information that you <clears throat> that you are comfortable with uh, sharing. And for mobile phones, I think one uh, significant thing as compared to uh, I don't know, Facebooks and uh, Googles and LinkedIn's of the world is a lot of people that you communicate with. Uh, they have a phone, they have a mobile phone, they have uh, smartphones and such. But not all of them are on Facebook. Not all of them are on Google. Uh, not all of them are on Twitter. So if I look myself, for example, if I look at uh, my communication with uh, my friends, colleagues, family, and other people, some of them are on WhatsApp. Good. Some of them, they have Facebook accounts. Some of them are on Google. But I don't have a unified way of being able to reach all of them and uh, seeing them as, uh, as uh, entities in those systems. So I don't have that. But I have all of them uh, somewhat connected where their phone numbers still because it's part of a, a relationship that I can just pick up the phone and have a synchronous communication because all other uh, phones are essentially asynchronous even instant messaging is you know it can be delivered almost synchronously but you know the other party may or may not see it may or may not respond to it it's a different story, but phone communication is still the most reliable synchronous way of communication. So it's it actually means a lot to uh, to keep that way of uh, being able to reach out to people uh, in your toolbox. That's essentially still very important, still very strong. Yes, we use our uh, phones less. We you know our phone call uh, durations are actually getting uh, shorter uh, but it, it actually means a lot to be able to do that if and when you need it facebook announced this login system for facebook recently where you actually don't need a facebook account to log in you just need a phone number is facebook doing that to compete on the same axes that truecaller is competing on um, i think so I think so. I mean, uh, it's very hard to say right now because, I mean, uh, those big big companies, they usually have like 100 different bets on 100 different things. And all of a sudden, two months later, they drop half of them, right? So it's very hard to tell because we are a more focused company. We have like uh, about 80 people uh, working only on this as compared to, you know, a few people inside Facebook may be working on this uh, as one of the 100 projects. So okay. it's very hard to say, but I think what I just explained, they can see it as well. Uh, they know that everyone is not going to be uh, comfortable or uh, very active on Facebook. So they might as well enlarge their platform because that's essentially... Uh, source of revenue, source of traffic, source of uh, brand value for them as well. So they want to reach out to the other people which they cannot cover by the typical Facebook use. I think so that I know makes sense. I, I know we're up against your time. I want to close off by just getting the long-term vision for Truecaller. What do you see the company transforming into? So what we see is uh, we want to we want to own the uh, the communication and uh, provide uh, good communication means. One one of the things uh, about phone numbers is you. 
just actually uh, mentioned, it's like a hash. It's it's a cryptic thing. It, it, it's not you actually, you as a person. It is some combination of some numbers, right? So we started by solving that problem and adding spam, and we have some uh, <clears throat> some additions to to improving the communication uh, on our roadmap. And we want to go on that on that track. We don't want to digress a lot uh, from that mission. Uh, I think we are doing pretty well. In, for example, in India, we just mentioned about India, but uh, in India, we are on more than one third of every smartphone right now, and it's growing. That that ratio is growing, and the market is growing very fast. India is 1.2 billion people but only 200-something smartphones. So the market is growing very rapidly. We want to just uh, protect our, our position there. Uh, people, when we ask people uh, how they see Truecaller, they always mention safety, trust, uh, those kind of words, which means our source of information that we provide to our users that is actually uh, that that creates a lot of value for our users because then they can trust the other party or not trust based on that information. So we want to keep that um, that relationship of trust with our users and of course crack new markets because uh, our success is very much uh, market dependent. Like uh, we, it, I want to say actually it you know in a way it is all or nothing in in a certain market so we want to add more markets to to the picture we have a bunch of them that we are very very big uh, but we want to be a worldwide player like Google's and Facebook's that's probably the next step for the company Umit, thanks for coming on the show. I am a big fan of Truecaller. You guys are an awesome company, and I look forward to seeing what you guys do in the future. Thank you very much for having me, and thanks. Thanks.